This is AA Beyond Belief, a podcast for, by, and about people who have found a secular path to recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. Hello, today I am with Jaron C. Jaron, I believe, is from Wisconsin, and he wrote a really nice article that he submitted to AA Beyond Belief a while ago, and I'm sorry I never posted it, but I will. And he wrote in there about a run that he had done that day, or around that time. He ran 100 miles, and he wrote about what he thinks when he runs, and oh, it was just a really nice short little piece, and we're going to post it someday, but... Anyway, I thought I would really like to have this guy on the podcast, so here he is today. Hey, Jaron, how you doing? Hey, John, thanks for having me on. I uh, really enjoy your show. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I enjoy doing this as well. It's uh, one of those things I never imagined that I would do, and now I can't imagine not doing it, so you know how that is. So um, what I'd like to do, Jaron, um, if you could start by just kind of introducing yourself through your story, and we'll just let that evolve into a conversation. Can you kind of give us a, a background about you know, what got you into recovery to begin with? Uh, sure. So um, I grew up in a suburb of Madison and I would say I had just like a normal middle-class upbringing. You know, um, my parents are still married. Um, I never felt out of place. I never saw my parents like intoxicated. They weren't like bar goers. My dad would have a couple beers in the garage. It was never like I just didn't see alcoholism or experience it, you know, um, as far as, uh, religious, um, I would say my parents got me confirmed. Um, I was baptized, but they, they just didn't go to church very often. I think my mom would pop us in on Christmas. It was more of like a social community, community type thing. But I think if you like ask my parents and they give you an honest answer, I don't think they, they have some doubts, you know? So, um, but I do remember um, we were going, I was going to Sunday school as a part of the confirmation process and they kind of continued with that. And one time um, we had a, a speaker talking to us about marriage, family, whatever it was. And somebody had brought up homosexuality and the guy said, and this, my mom was just happened to be in the room and he had said something to the akin of, if God wanted homosexuals in the world, he would have made Adam and Steve. So, and then, so right out, right after that, my mom, to her credit, took us out and, you know, we really haven't been back since. So, but as far as the, the drinking was concerned, I, I kind of had smoked pot and that really just wasn't my thing. I don't know why I just, I could take it or leave it. But I remember one time my dad had a, a, I don't know, it was kind of a work party at our house. And like I said, he doesn't drink all that much. So he had a, like a keg in the basement that was like barely gone. And I had a couple of buddies over that night and I was probably 14. And we would sneak after my parents had gone to bed, we would sneak to that keg and just fill up our little cups. And we'd go back to the, you know, my room and we'd drink them and, I just remember not so much being like super intoxicated, but I remember just feeling like this is an amazing feeling and I want more of it. And the next day I didn't feel well. And you'd think most people that 
had their first drunk were like, oh, I'm never going to do that again. For me, it was like it became an obsession. I could not sit still in class. I was like, oh, man, I can't wait till Saturday. How are we going to get beer? Let's make a plan to get beer. And it was like it was constantly on my mind. And the, I always wanted to drink from that moment on. And it just it really took over, took me really fast. Um, by the I was before I started drinking, I got pretty good grades. I was a pretty popular you know, kid in my class, I would, I would say graduated high school. Um, I was going to a community college and I had my own apartment and I would just drink by myself. It was weird before my friends would even pick me up to go to a, you know, a house party or a bar. I was already intoxicated. And then by the time I would get to those house parties or the bar or whatever it was, I was basically in a blackout. So by the time I was 18, 19, I was just making a complete spectacle of myself. Um, wake up, uh, humiliated, um, totally embarrassed. And then to make myself feel better, I'd want to get drunk again to forget about that. So that just became the cyclical cycle of just drinking nonstop. And I would say by the time I was, you know, in my early 20s, I was drinking pretty much every waking moment um i got my first dui i blew a 0.41 so i was five times the legal limit you know and that's that's where it took me i was like a, a low bottom drunk and it got to the point i heard in the rooms a lot where we drank around people that made us feel like we weren't drunks and i never really i couldn't find anybody that drank like i did you know i was from the moment i woke up was just gangbusters with the drinking and yeah so it was it was bad um so fortunately uh when i was 25 you know i had pretty much lost everything i had tried you know treatments and stuff and it just it didn't work but i was doing it for the wrong reasons for my parents for some job that i had just lost again you know i think i had the record for most call-ins you know, it was just, it, it was a complete mess. And I was sick. I was physically dependent on alcohol. And I think that's hard for a lot of people to understand was if I wasn't drinking, I couldn't function. And that's a, a really sad place to be. And then once I would sober up, maybe in detox or whatever it was, I would promise myself, I am not going to drink ever again. I cannot do this. I'm done. And then as soon as I got out of detox, I was back drinking again and that was that obsession and I just it was it just had such its claws in me and it was it, it was just I was miserable and I didn't know what to do so what happened finally that got you to um, ask for help get to AA or start your sobriety yeah so I mean it was a combination of things um, you know I was living with a girl and she gave me the boot and basically uh, my parents basically didn't want to have anything to do with me anymore um i was just constantly letting them down you know family members were just friends were embarrassed to go out with me it's just it was uh i was dying of alcoholism and i was dying of loneliness you know i it, it was just i would sit in my apartment by myself just you know hoping that my phone would ring so that there could be some so i could just talk to somebody and there was nobody so i remember um through like various 
mandatory, you know, court things for my two drunk drivings, I would, um, they made me go to like AA once in a while and I didn't get much out of it. Um, but I knew I had to do something. So, so what was your impression of AA the few times that you had to go at that back then? Um, so I was going to a couple small town church basement meetings and they were, you know, there was only like a three or four or five maybe people there, like big book meeting. And it was kind of like, I was forced to go there. So I just kind of wanted to do my hour and leave, you know? Yeah. So I didn't get a whole lot out of it. I remember there was one guy though, that, uh, he was really persistent in getting my number and I gave it to him and he would, to his credit, he called a lot. And, um, but I just, I wasn't ready, you know? So, um, but when I was ready, I remember picking up the telephone book because I got sober in 2007. I picked up the telephone book and I just, I was kind of looking for a treatment center, but it was a Sunday. So I was like, well, I called the AA hotline to see what, what they could do to help me. I just wanted to talk to an operator, just some somebody to tell how bad my life was at that moment. And a guy, they switched me over to a guy and he said, um, yeah, where are you? And I gave him my address and he's like, well, I'll come pick you up. And I'm like, okay, why? He's like, well, we're going to go to a meeting. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then I was still very much at the tail end of DTs. I didn't feel well. I was kind of like, oh man, I don't know if I should be leaving, but I was like, well, this guy's coming from wherever maybe I'll just check it out. So he, he drove, he picked me up and, um, turns out he was an off or a, a retired police officer. So he let me sit in the uh, passenger seat of his car. And I remember thinking, wow, this is the first time I've ever sat up front with a police officer <laughs> at any time getting a ride. So he took me to a meeting and, um, we walked down the stairs and it was just nothing but smoke. I mean, my eyes burned going into this place. But, you know, when they we had a first step meeting and it was a traditional meeting and um, people told me about their stories and there was a comfort knowing that there was people like me that drank like me, you know, and there was people that did things. One thing I always liked about AA was like, it's unfortunate for them, but there's always somebody that did something worse than you did. You know what I mean? So it kind of made me feel better about myself and that if this guy can live with the shame and guilt that he's gone through, so can I. And I left that meeting with hope and the guy took me to another meeting and it just, it stuck. It resonated with me at that time. And, um, for me, and then I, I got a big book. I had to do a weekend in jail um, for that, the DUI that I got. Um, and he gave me a big book and I checked myself in and I remember reading the big book and not necessarily, I was kind of like, well, you know, whatever, but these guys made it sound like it was this piece of literature that would just change my life, you know? And I did ever felt that immediately. But the one thing that really got me through that weekend being incarcerated were the stories in the back. And I don't ever hear many people talk about those. I always really liked those stories because I just read them over and over and over again. And I was like, well, this, 
this is very inspiring. And um, yeah, I, I just, I kept going pretty religiously, you know, no pun intended for, uh, you know, five years. And um, yeah, so. We do have a lot in common. You know, uh, obviously I also started out at 25, had my last drink, had a, had a history of DWIs. Um, I was also um, at the, uh, during the worst of my drinking, very isolated from other people. Um, people uh, looked at me. I felt like they were disgusted with me. I'll never forget one time a friend of mine came to pick me up from jail. And this is someone I used to drink with. And he was just so freaking disgusted with me. He even said I smelled bad. Like I smell, you know how you smell when you come out of jail. <laughs> yeah. You smell like I piss gotcha. and everything. So, <laughs> <laughs> I was just, that's, that's, you know, that's the life. You know, it was awful. And um, so, yeah, I, I had a very similar story. Then I um, I lost my job because of my drinking and everything that I had. And what I find kind of interesting, and, and maybe maybe you feel this way too, is in a way I'm fortunate because, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have a lot to begin with. <laughs> you know, so it wasn't that hard to lose everything that I had really. But it was still devastating enough because like you, I just I just realized, you know, that you know, I was reading, I think this is from what you wrote in your story that you, you submitted to AA Beyond Belief. It's that I realized that my future looked like jail and prison. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's it. I, I knew if I continued to drink, I was either going to die or go to prison because I could not stop drinking and driving just because I needed to get to the liquor store or wherever it was. And I, for some reason, you know, now I live in the same city and I, I take the bus and I'm sober. I don't understand why that never crossed my mind when I was drinking or why, you know, it, it's the ride a bike. It's, I think what it is, is that when, when I drank, I could not use, I could not use my, the rational part of my mind. You know, it's like that just went out the window. I could no, I could not say, oh, I got a DUI last time I did this. I better not do it this time. I, uh, that, that just didn't come into my mind. Once the alcohol was in my mind, it took over. And a lot of times I was blacked out too, you know, when I was driving. So I'm not trying to make an excuse for what I was doing, but I really, I, you know, that's what terrified me after that third DUI is I realized, God, I can't freaking stop this, you know? Yeah. It, it's sad, man. It, yeah, it's a shame. It, it is. It is frightening. And one thing that uh, was a little bit different with me is they didn't push the big book on me so much early on. And that didn't happen until a few years later. But um, in fact, they no one even talked about it. And, and I heard that they had this book, and I was really excited about find, about about getting the, my hands on this book. And I, I went to the library and I actually found it. And I remember the first time I read it, I think I just realized how old it was. And I, I discarded it. And I, I started going to other books. But then finally, I did get the book. And um, I, was, I was drawn to, I think the first thing I went to was um, There is a Solution. <laughs> it was the first chapter. I, I want to get right to that part. And the one thing that I related to is they were talking about um, coming to the great jumping off point or something like that where you just can't imagine life with alcohol or without it, the great jumping off place, something like that. And I, I definitely could relate to that. So there were things in that book I could relate to for sure. 
Um, but I had a pretty good experience, I think, with the with my early AA meetings. And so you, how how how's your been? How's your experience been since getting into the program? And what, how have you been coping with it as I assume a non-believer? Um. So when I came in, one of the first meetings. So I went back to that initial small church basement meeting I was talking about earlier where that was kind of court mandated to go to it and it had gotten bigger in the time that I you know was drinking and came back to it so it was you know maybe 20 25 guys at this point and there was some real um thumpers in there and uh it was you know and there's that that alpha there's a couple of those guru guys you know what i mean that everybody just kind of they seem to have about eight sponsees and they're just you know totally binary thinking it's black and white you're going to drink if you do xyz you're not going to drink if you do this and it was pretty rigid and i remember there was one guy and this is for me early on in my sobriety he he said he was is anybody having any anniversaries and he goes um 25 years ago, God picked me to be sober and I can't take any credit for that. It was all his doing. And then everybody, you know, give him his round of applause, which he was due, you know, 25 years is an accomplishment. I was like, wow, that's amazing. And then it was like, Hey, is anybody back after a relapse? And, uh, you know, this kid, you know, embarrassingly raises his hand and they proceeded these gurus to tell him everything he was doing wrong and blah, 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 blah. And it got to me because we do it in Madison where you kind of go in a, you know, round the table. It's not popcorn style. So when it got to me, I just said, I guess I'm kind of confused. Why would God make him sober and not him? You said that it doesn't meeting. make any yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. Why would God make me an alcoholic just to get me sober? Because <laughs> I firmly believe I was born with my wires crossed somewhere with the drinking. You know, uh, from the moment I did it, it just felt different for me than I think it does other people. So I was like, why am I born an alcoholic for God to make me sober? And then I just don't understand why he would choose this man to get sober as opposed to the millions of other people and they just lambasted me i mean they went you're never gonna get sober if you don't have a spiritual experience you're never gonna and then can you imagine being 25 years old this community of aa is all you have and you just want to fit in right you Uh, just want to be a part of it yeah yep and so i just i they said, you fake it till you make it. And I said, okay, I'm faking it till I make it. And I would say all the stuff in meetings. And I wanted those head nods from these guys. I wanted the grand poobah over there to think that I am, you know, this AA guy. And I would say, you know, God, and I would pray and I would do, but you know, deep down, I didn't feel that. And then I would go. And the worst part for me was I spoke a lot in those first couple of years. And I would get up there in front of these people. I say, you know, by the grace of God, I'm sober. And I I felt like a phony. And I just, from the moment I would hear people, I never thought that God had anything to do with my sobriety. For me, my higher power is reality. You know, I heard a lady say that in one of your, like, I know that if I drink, I am going to get in trouble. I know when I drink, my life is worse. I know that. That's my sobriety. And for me, spirituality is 
you know, or a spiritual experience, when you hear a song or you go to a movie or you run into a friend you'd been thinking about and that, that hair on the back of your neck stands up and you get excited. And for me, those are spiritual experiences. I don't need to have a light coming in through my window, man. You know, like those, those things that they talk about that, I don't know. I just, I never felt it. And, um, I, I felt like an outcast, um, you know, not so much because I would, I would just lie and embellish basically, you know? So when you were doing that, see, I did the same thing. And, but when I, when I was doing that and it, for me, it went on for a way longer than it really should have, <laughs> but I was do I was doing that, I think almost at a subconscious level. And I, and I, and looking back on the experience now, I can see how it happened. Okay. Cause like you, I came in there, I was totally alone. I was, you know, nobody wanted anything to do with me. AA was all I had. It was the only hope I had. And I thought the God stuff was weird, but I kind of put it out of my mind, you know? And I remember early on just kind of justifying it to myself. I was saying, okay. And I, I just speaking to myself, thinking to myself, okay, there's gotta be some psychological benefit to all this stuff. And so I was just going to, I was just going to go along with the flow. Right. And next thing you know, I kind of forgot about how I was re rationalizing it. And I just started doing all the crap and saying all the stuff that I heard, getting the approval of the other people in the group did that. I did that for a long time. But then what happened with me is, like I said, I did not realize that I was doing that, that I, that I was conforming in that way. Did you realize it intentionally that you were doing it? Or is it just something that you kind of fell into and now you look at it in hindsight? Yeah, I think that fake it till you make it phrase just kept going through my head, you know. And then there was a lady, I had a good friend and he was more vocal about his non-belief and they and i would see just the shit that this guy would take and i'm like wow i don't want any part of that you know and um he was more of a like a far east you know buddhist uh, that kind of stuff and they and you know they say higher power of your own understanding and group of drunks or it can be the doorknob or whatever it is but when it gets to brass tacks, we know what a lot of these people are talking about, you know, and he just felt out of place and he just stopped going. And I didn't want to be that. I still wanted the community. I still wanted to be in touch and I still liked going to meetings. And I think AA became my religion, so to speak. Like I liked, yeah, I liked, and I got caught up in the gossip. You know, I thought if I was going to miss a meeting, Oh boy, I wouldn't know what was going on. And so it was like my bar. I had to go there at eight o'clock every night to go see so and so <laughs> right, or whatever, right, right. And, and quite frankly, I needed that. Yeah, I had nowhere else I know, to, to a certain go, extent, that's kind of good, you know, because it gives you it gives you that socialization, you know, other people that you're in contact with who's are, who are supporting you, people who have gone through similar problems. A lot of that, a lot of that is really good stuff, you know, to to do that. So plus, I could see the people coming back. I thought that was super important. Like I would see Joe Schmo. He was there for a couple of weeks, seemed like he was getting his life back together. Then he's gone. Then he comes back a month later and he's got another DUI or, you know, lost that job. Or And I was like, oh, okay, that's why I keep coming here. And I needed those. I, so I thought that was really important. Plus he could start giving back a little bit. And But for me, things kind of, so we got married, my wife and I obviously, and 
uh, we had a child on the way and I switched to second shift. So once the child was born, I was watching a, um, the infant all day, then I was going to work. So for me, I wasn't going to bring a small child to an AA meeting and plus all my favorite AA meetings were at night. So things really kind of, for me and the program, just naturally, I got all those things that the promises told me I would have, you know? And um, so I just kind of stopped going as definitely as much as I used to, but I was still trying to make like once a week. And then eventually got to, you know, the running was, was amping up and I was training and then my wife and I didn't see her till the weekends and something had to give. And then get into um, running anyway, by the way, you know, I was smoking, um, when I first got sober and then once my wife was pregnant, she said, uh, you know, I don't want this kid around cigarette smoke. And I was like, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. So I, so, you know, I said, I'm done. I quit smoking and then I gained a, you know, maybe 30 pounds. Cause I just started eating way more. And, uh, that's kind of where the running took off. And, um, you know, we're alcoholics, things progress pretty rapidly. So I, I went from, uh, doing five K's, to half marathons to marathons to, you know, really long distance stuff. So, and it's, it's been a, something I've really enjoyed. And I think it, it definitely helps me stay sober. That's for sure. You know, I, I had, um, I'm, I run on and off, mostly off, it seems lately, but I had, I did the same thing. I quit smoking after 10 years of sobriety. And so I'm like in my thirties and, um, I started running. Um, it's kind of weird. I, I guess, uh, I don't know how I got into it. I, I started just, I started exercising and then I got into running, but anyway, I did this race. It was like a five K and I just remember feeling like so um, amazing afterwards, the the adrenaline or whatever it was, and and I was kind of hooked on that for a while, and and it was really a good thing for me. And I was um, I was progressing in my running and really enjoying it, and I loved it when I got into that state where it seemed like I wasn't struggling with the run, and my body just kind of naturally took over. You know, and, and when people talk about meditation, I would see that as kind of my meditation at that time, because I, I would just go into that zone where I'm just totally relaxed. I would be thinking about things. I might even solve problems, you know, while I'm running. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I have the same experience. I, a lot of the people that I see, you know, wear headphones and, and I don't, I just, I focus on my breathing and I just, I hammer it, you know, and then I, I think, I mean, my past is doesn't consume me by, you know, anything, but every once in a while I'll pass an old bar or, you know, a homeless guy or whatever it is. And then I just kind of like, you know, what a better life I have now. It, it, it's amazing. When they told me, when I first came in there, this guy came up to me after a meeting and he said, if you just stay sober one day at a time, I promise you'll have a wonderful life, you know? And that guy was, I've done things I've never thought I'd be able to do. And, uh, it's because I stay sober, you know? Yep. No, same here. And one, one of the things that kind of motivated me early on, cause it took me a while before I started seeing any, any improvement in my life. Um, I had, uh, 
I had, it took me a while to kind of build up to have like jobs that would pay decently and all this kind of stuff. So I was kind of struggling in a lot of different ways. But one thing that motivated me is I always said to myself, you know what, at least I'm not adding to my problems. I'm, I'm, I'm getting myself out, out of them and hopefully going forward, things are going to be okay. The drinking was just so crazy that almost anything would be better. I mean, it was the, um, the, it was the, uh, putting me in jail <laughs> was, the, yeah. was, was the final straw, I guess that for me, <laughs> Yeah, so least, as long it. as people aren't putting me in jail, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can only go one direction. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but like you were saying, I think I heard in one of your stories that your meetings kind of tailed off when you went back to school. I did the same thing, you know, so I, you know, I was doing school, I had an infant and, and then when I would go back to meetings and I would see a lot of these guys that were in the same spot in their life that they were, 10 years ago when I would see them, it's like they hadn't really progressed at all. You know, they were still sober, but as far as people in that, and that's my opinion, maybe I shouldn't take their inventory, but I know for me that I, I wanted to be a better person. I, I wanted to experience things. I wanted to travel, you know, I wanted to, like you said, those runs were always fun and exciting and motivated me. And I wanted my degree and, and I wanted to be a good dad. And, um, so you were and going. In, w- you were in a whole other phase of your recovery that I think that sobriety is all about. You know, it's easy to hide in a meeting, but you kind of got out there in the world. You know, you went to school. You started meeting other people. You were um, starting a family. That those are the. Th- that's why we. I think that's the part of getting sober that I wouldn't have wanted to miss. I could have very easily just spent all my time in those AA meetings, but I think that that period of time when I was not going to as many meetings but I was going to school and I was reading and I was learning and I was meeting other people that was just as important to my recovery as anything else. And like you, I'd come back to meetings and what changed with me is that, um, in school I learned to, I was thinking critically. They really taught me to think critically, which was probably the, the best thing I got from my education when I went back. And I started applying that that type of thinking to what I was hearing in meetings. And that started leading me down the road to where I'm at today. You know? Yeah. And I think, you know, school was, you know, there was more critical thinking and it wasn't, it made me, made my, you know, atheism or what you, my non-belief, I guess, kind of more intense, you know, you would read literature and you studied question things even more. And, then I would go back to meetings and it was like, it got to the point where I just, if the topic was, you know, the second step or, you know, God, anything, I would just pass. And I kind of felt like I wasted an hour of my day, you know, which I wasn't going very much anyways. And, um, yeah. So So were you always kind of out as an atheist when you were at these meetings? No. So early on, and this is before, you know, the internet was, really booming you know i think before a beyond belief i didn't know anything about secular meetings whatever i know that there was two you know staunch atheists that would come to a a traditional meeting that i would frequent and i remember that i mean they took a lot a lot from the people and um i remember like would be after the meetings and you could hear the people talking about 
those two atheists like i can't believe they said that you know what i mean and i was like oh man i don't want to be any part of that so yeah i was i was pretty closeted but my wife she's an atheist and she she just doesn't care one way or the other That's you know what my i wife mean is. she's yeah she's just kind of like well it's their deal and, and i feel like that to some extent but right you know there's a level of frustration when it's like it's so in your face you know and a lot of these guys were just so hypocritical there was like these major this group that was like a major big book thumping god is the only way you need to have a spiritual experience people and they were just and um They'd have the parties and, you know, all, all the, you know, young people would go there and it was like, and I remember once one person said, you know, why do you keep 13 stepping these young newcomers, you know? And he's like, well, because the big book doesn't say anything about not having sex with a newcomer. Oh, you're kidding me. Shit. Yeah. And God I'm just it. like, yeah. And I'm just like, oh man. Unbelievable. Like, I see. I, I, of course I know that that kind of crap goes on. I've never seen it personally. I guess I've I have I've seen only once and it was fairly recently at my at my existing group. There was a guy that was coming to meetings and he he wasn't um you know physically sexually um caught, uh, do, doing anything, but he was doing what in the workplace would definitely be sexual harassment. And I had a talk with him and I just said, you're not going to talk to any of the women here. <laughs> I just told him that. I said, it's unacceptable what you've done. And quite frankly, I chased him away. And I I feel okay about that because what he was doing was making people... It's it's like it's... It's not that she, he's just making these women feel uncomfortable. He's endangering their damn life because they're, they're not going to go to the, the meetings. I mean, it's, it's like the worst thing you can do. I mean, so you don't even have to sexually take advantage of a person. It's just, it's just that kind of thing, that demeaning, controlling stuff is just doesn't belong in AA at all. I think that when you see it, you got to really nip it in the butt. So anyway, so it was happening. You saw it. Yeah, and then you just see the amount of mental illness that's around there, you know, and people that are in and out and... and and I've met some of the greatest people I've ever met in AA, but I've also met some of the biggest weirdos, you know, and um, there's times where I just haven't felt safe in a clubhouse. And then my wife's going to meetings and I was, so, you know, you pick and choose, I guess. That's kind of our society anyways. But. Yeah. Yeah. That's too bad. That, that certainly is. But to, to be fair to AA, I think that any other organization would probably have the sim- similar problems where you have, you know, people that from the public gathering together from all walks of life and people that are um, vulnerable. I mean, it's just going to happen. It happens in churches. It happens, you know, all over. But that that doesn't excuse it. But it does. It just makes it's just that it's important to be hyper aware that it happens and to be able to jump on it when it does to let people know that, no, that's not OK. What that guy said about the big book not saying that, that's just crazy. You know, um, I, I just... The way the big book has just gotten so weird. It's gotten it's gotten more bizarre all the time about how people um, think about it. You know. Yeah, I'm. I mean, it's never really resonated with me like it does some of these guys. I mean, they take it as gospel, and they if you do don't follow it- more than I think I've ever seen them before. I mean, I mean, I guess I kind of okay. Like 
when in the nineties, when I was kind of going through the big book, um, yeah, I mean, we were, we were studying it, we were underlining it, we were reading it and all this kind of stuff. Um, and people thought it was great, but it wasn't like worshiped like it is so many places now. It seems like it's actually people, that's what drove me away from, from my old home group. People started using that damn book like it was a law book. Like it was something that I, that, that people would use it to prove me wrong, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, there was a guy and he was one of these guru guys, man. He had his minions and, and they would, you know, get their responses. He had a whole thing set up and, and he was getting guys sober. I Kudos to him. It, he was doing the thing, but he was staunch. And he would say it in meetings that you should not be taking your prescription medications you should not be taking your antidepressants because that's mind altering and he would tell these people that and it was like it was dangerous and the guy was a landscaper and i'm talking to these guys i'm like you're taking medical advice from a guy that cuts grass (laughs) for a living like why are you doing do not do that it you know it it's well, crazy. mind altering. Um, going to AA meetings is mind altering. Running is mind altering. Drinking coffee is mind altering. <laughs> going to school is mind altering. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, but yeah, that that that's a shame too. But anyway, so how did you get involved? I, I'm assuming are you going to a secular meeting now? I, they have one in Madison, right? Yeah, they have. They're they're very new. Um, there's four of them and uh, with my schedule it's hard to make a lot of them um, but I bounce I bounce in and out I wouldn't say I have a home group but um, when I do show up I so I had the day off and it was a Monday and I was like you know I should really get to a meeting and it said agnostic on the the website you know Mako for Madison and I was like oh wow that sounds kind of cool so I went and checked it out and it was uh, it was refreshing you know, it was people, I, I felt for the first time in a long time in a meeting that I could speak up uh, about my true thoughts without hearing, oh, you, you know, those types of things or the ro- eye rolls or whatever. Right. Do they and, read um, like at other meetings in, in Madison, I'm assuming like they do in Kansas City anyway, do they read how it works before the meetings start? Not at the secular meetings, but at the other meetings. Yep, how it works yeah. at the beginning and then we we hold hands um, and do the Lord's prayer ever after every meeting. I actually, so I was the host of a meeting or chairperson of a meeting that Clancy was speaking at. It was like a conference thing. You know, that's how I had dinner with the guy. That's how involved I was. And then he spoke. And then I said, you know, thank everybody for coming. And he was like yelling at me from the podium. He's like, we need to do the Lord's prayer. We need to do the Lord's prayer. He was really upset. Yeah. (laughs) So crazy. uh, Yeah. But that whole thing about how it works. Okay. So the first time I went to an agnostic meeting, they actually had one in Lawrence, Kansas, which is close by to where I live. I didn't even know it was there. It was there for like two years. So I went to that meeting and they did not open with um, any kind of prayer. They didn't read how it works and they didn't close with a prayer. And that made it so damn nice. It's like it took this 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 horrible weight off of the meeting. This this oppression oppression. I felt like it was a it was oppressive after a while, especially after I realized I was an atheist. Hearing somebody read how it works that there is one who has all power, that one is God, may you find him. That just was so oppressive to me. 
It was just awful. So yeah, so yeah, when you experience not having that, it's a, it's a huge difference. It, you feel like you're doing something wrong if you don't experience that, you know. And um, yeah, I I mean, people would tell me that they would get on their knees and they would pray, and then when they sincerely surrendered, they never wanted to drink again. And I always thought that sounds so easy. I want whatever these guys are doing. And for me, it took work, you know, it was a day at a time, you know? Yeah. So you, how did you learn about all this stuff? Did you just get online and search for us? Is that how you found us? Yeah. Yep. I searched and then I just, I went and, um, I got the literature and, and then I started going to AA Beyond Belief and reading this stuff and I was like wow it was kind of like going to your first meeting and meeting people that drank like you did you know and then it's like okay these people drink like I did and they think the way and my surprise too when I went to the agnostic meeting was I thought that they were going to bash God or you know the other tradition and it wasn't like that at all it was just a meeting without the God stuff that's cool that's yeah, how most of ours was, are too. We we've done some bashing from time to time, but most for the very most part, it's just a, a regular AA meeting, just like any other, just no praying and all that. Yeah, and I kind of feel like maybe I've bashed traditional meetings more than I should in this podcast, but That's all right. because they have, <laughs> it really did save my life going there and getting sober. I don't think I would have got sober without it. You know, um, but as you progress as a person and I'll still go to traditional meetings and see people, you know, and um, but I think the agnostic meetings are definitely more, you know, my route going forward. And I don't think that we're bashing it. I think it's just part of our experience. I mean, for me, I love I still I still love AA. I mean, but it was so important to me. It was a huge part of my life. And I was these guys were my friends for 25 years. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I would talk different, and they didn't accept me anymore after 25 years. Yes, yeah. It broke my heart, and they didn't know it. And so, you know, when I criticize AA, it's it's really out of love. It's to let people know, don't you know what you did? You know what? I I was at a meeting one time. I'm sorry, I'm going to go off a little bit. I was at a meeting one time, a traditional meeting at my old home group. And at the end, and this is after I came out as an atheist. At the end, they were doing the Lord's Prayer. I stood there respectfully, but without reciting the prayer. One guy stared at me, gave me the evil eye during that, that, during that prayer. Like, looked at me like I was a criminal or something. I swear to God. And I wish I would have gone over and said something to him, but I didn't. So anyway, yeah, I'm not bashing it, but I'm just saying that, listen, this is what happened. And, it, and, and, it react, and I, I react to it emotionally because it was like my family no longer accepting me because I, I went off and did something true to my own um, ideas and beliefs. And that's what it was like. It was really painful. But at the same time, I moved on away from that. So I, I don't go to those meetings anymore. We started our secular meetings here in Kansas City. And now I have my own. <laughs> I have people who I can relate to who will accept me and I accept them wherever they are in life. And I don't care. They could become religious. I'm fine with it, whatever. Just totally fine with it. But yeah, it's a, it's a different thing. So I'm still in AA, 
but and but I any criticism that I give of it is from my own personal experience and it comes from a lot of pain. Yeah, I I, I was pretty hurt at, uh, one time in in the program. I know so when they when I got sober and I could see where they're coming from, you know, you you, you have to change your playmates and your playgrounds is what they told me. So a lot of those guys that I drank with, they're like, oh, well, you need to, you know, you need to make new friends, sober friends, you know, and, you know, but John, a lot of those guys that I drank with, they drank normal. I was the one that was out of control. You know, a lot of those guys I drank with, they've been my buddies since elementary school. So um, I remember when I first got sober, I was helping people move all the time. I was, you know, cutting their grass if they needed it. I was, you know, doing all these things I, I thought was service work, you know. And when we bought our house, I was like, oh, wow. You know, I just helped like 25 people move in the last three years. I, I'm really going to, this is going to be a piece of cake, you know. And I called all those people and not one of them showed up, you know. And then... um but all those guys that I drank with, quote unquote, you know, they were there to give me a hand. And that meant a lot to me. And so it kind of made me realize that a lot of these people that I've met in AA are acquaintances, not true friends. You know, I've had, a, I have a, a handful of good friends in AA, but a lot of these guys that they come and go in my life. And, I, you know, that's just the way it is. It's very know? true. It's, um, you get, um, Joe C said something to me once that you get a, I don't know how to put it, kind of like a false sense of intimacy that you think that you, in AA, that you feel like you're closer to these people than you really are because, you know, you're going to these meetings and you're sharing honestly with each other and you do get along. You like, you like each other. You're, you're, you feel like you're friends, but when you're not at the meeting, like when I stopped going to my home group, I never heard from anybody there ever. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah. I, and, and, you know, probably the same thing would be true with my secular group too. If I stop going, you know, I'm probably not going to be in touch with these guys. And you realize, you know, my sobriety doesn't really impact anybody other than my immediate family That's right. or my coworkers, you know? So, and same thing with those people I went to meetings with, if they're drinking, you know, that's, well, my life goes on, you know, I wish them the best. Yeah. It's all about AA for me is um, what I what I do so I can just live my normal life. But where where um, the rubber hits the road is how I do at work, how I do with my wife and my family, and take care of my responsibilities. That's that's what this that's what sobriety has done for me. And I'm, and AA is great, and I love going to the meetings, and I love watching other people get better. I mean, what's what's what I get the most joy out of meetings now is watching people like who who were who who are young like I was when I was starting and watching them get their lives together that that to me I just feel like I've come full circle it's like yeah you know I don't have to say anything to these people all I have to do is just watch them and think yeah I I like what I'm seeing here this is nice and I think this, the podcast and the website is important because I think there's a lot of people that are like us that when they first come in are scared to say anything because they don't want to be kicked out. They don't want the groans. 
And they're fragile. I mean, we have thin skin. I was at a meeting the other day, a traditional meeting, and my buddy was talking to me. This is before the meeting. We're sitting there just chit-chatting. And he goes, well, what are you doing for meetings these days, Jaron? And I was like, well, I've been I've been checking out these secular meetings, and they're, they're really good. And he's like, oh, I've never heard of those. You know, what, what's it about? And I was kind of just explaining it to him. And this guy next to me was just rolling his eyes and making faces, and he wasn't even a part of the conversation. So, of course, when the meeting starts, he has to go and pontificate for 15 minutes about how important God is in his life. And it's like, I don't care what you believe or what you don't believe. Why do you need to make me feel bad? Like, I just don't understand that aspect of it. Yeah. So... Let's wind things up with a, on a positive note. <laughs> yeah. So how 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 are things today? How are you doing today? What's what what do you enjoy um, doing? Um, you know, I love going to live music. I my running's really important. Um, my kids, we're always doing something. Um, so I travel quite a bit. You know, um, I worked for American Airlines for a while, and so I could fly. And my family and I could fly anywhere. So, you know, I'd experience the world and just get out of my bubble and do all those things that I couldn't do drinking, you know? And, and that's what uh, sobriety has done for me. So, yeah, my wife and I are actually planning on doing some traveling. Um, we want to actually this year, she's recovering from back surgery right now and she wants to start traveling and her goal is to go to um, England this year. So we'll see, we'll see how that works. We're going to London in uh, two months. Oh, awesome. So I'll let you Yeah. So I don't know what she loves England and she wants to go to some different places, um, travel around a little bit. I don't know how long we're going to spend there, but um, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be nice. So, and that's another episode of AA Beyond Belief. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to help out our site and podcast, there's a couple of things you can do. First of all, go over to iTunes and leave us a review, hopefully a favorable one. You can also help out financially with either a recurring or one-time contribution. You can do that by setting up small recurring donations at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash aabeyondbelief or through PayPal at paypal.me slash aabeyondbelief. And you can always visit our site, aabeyondbelief.org, and click on the donate button. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast.